The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Tonight, we're putting this series to bed, and so now I give you your final teaching, a visit to the cockpit with your captain, Skip Heitzig. Well, good evening. I'm joined by, who are you? Matt. This is Matt Perolo. That's He's, right. I dedicated him, didn't I? That's right. I was a little lighter then. Yeah. So I had the privilege of right watching his um, parents meet each other mm-hmm. and then um, see them get married. And then you guys came along and we dedicated you right here. Right here. And now you're here on as a stage. pastor on the staff. Yeah, that's right. Which is fun. My parents actually met in on a trip to Israel in an airport. So how appropriate. Right. I remember when their eyes locked. We just love airplanes here. Do you? I actually do. I remember the moment. It was like, happened. Wow. It was cool. Well, very good. I was there. Um, so we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Obviously, we've been two years in this series. Uh, thank you, COVID, for postponing the series just a little bit. Um, but we're excited to visit the cockpit. You've written in several questions. A lot of them are ends time related. You know, we just spent two weeks in the book of Revelation. Sure. And so uh, I think that was fresh on a lot of people's minds. And some of the questions are going to be geared towards that. But uh, before we get to Is this your Bible, by the way? Yes. It's so tiny, these words. Well, for tiny Bible for a tiny man. Can you read that okay? I didn't say that. (laughs) And I wasn't thinking that. Well, I appreciate it. I was thinking how good your eyes must be. For now. I had eye envy for a minute because I, I need bigger font. Go ahead. Uh, so where were we? Oh. Were we doing Bob Dylan impressions? Is that what? That was a while back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. You're going to have to serve some. Yes, you do. <laughs> Can we just do this all night? We have 43 Should we minutes. answer it like Bob Dylan would answer it? I'd like for you to answer the questions like Bob Dylan would answer these questions. Uh, okay, Matt. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> speaking of COVID, the first question is pertaining to that in these current circumstances that we are living through. It says, did God create COVID-19 either as a warning to or a judgment on our sinful country and world? Does the use of the word pestilences in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 apply yeah. to COVID? Um, I can't tell you why God, let's, let's reframe that a little bit, mm-hmm. allowed it to happen yeah. rather than creating it. Um, God created humans with volition, yeah. and with that comes an enormous risk. It's the risk where f- free moral agents might make the wrong choice, mm-hmm. and, and there are consequences to every choice that is made. Also, we live in a fallen world that has natural evil, and so everything from tsunamis to cancers to tornadoes, all sorts of things happen. Now, when you take an atom that God made and you decide, let's mess around with that atom, let's split the atom, you're going to have a very explosive result, literally. So you can take nature and man can interpose his will in nature and you can have results good or bad. Uh, We don't know if somebody in a lab in another country engineered this virus or not. We haven't dug in far enough to know exactly what happened. I know there's been talk about that, accusations of that happening, but that is possible. God allows the potentiality for evil because we live in a fallen culture and we have free will. 
Okay. So would you say to the second part of that question, does the use of the word pestilences, mm. could that pertain to coronavirus? Could that include coronavirus well, as okay. well? Okay. It could in a, in a, in a uh, secondary sense. The, the Matthew 24 text right. primarily has to do with judgments during the tribulation mm -hmm. period, Daniel's 70th week, and uh, the kind of catastrophic events that will occur on the earth, uh, which include a number of things, including pestilences, uh, this certainly is a pestilence of sort, although there have been several in history like this, mm. um, pandemics that have killed a lot more people than have died, many more people than have died from COVID around the world, uh, far worse. But uh, so I, I don't see what's happening as COVID as a pestilence described in Matthew 24, but I think it is, it could fit into one of the birth pangs mm. where you see uh, hints of it, and you can have a preview of coming attractions. I think what you're going to get in the tribulation will be far more disastrous than a highly transmissible flu. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. So in Genesis 15, we're jumping, we just talked about Re Matthew a little bit, Revelation okay. later, going all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 15, verse 28, the land that was promised to Abram was described as a rather large area of land, right? So the question is, as God keeps his promises, is the thinking that Israel will one day reach its biblically defined boundaries, either before or dur during the tribulation? I think that's an excellent question, first of all. Very mm -hmm. astute. Uh, it's a studied question because if you look at the promise that God gave to Abram. And I love that the questioner asked and used the term Abram because mm -hmm. God gave that to Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. But the, what, what, what God promised is from um, the Euphrates River all the way to the river of Egypt. And if you look at the geographical layout of the promise that God made in Genesis, God promised Israel to inhabit 300,000 square miles yeah, of land. It's enormous. Now, they have never in their history occupied all the land God promised. Mm -hmm. At Israel's peak, at its zenith, historically under David and Solomon, Solomon uh, gave peace and he and his father expanded the borders. Uh, at their very zenith, they only occupied Israel as a nation, 30,000 square miles. So, at the best in history, they've only occupied one-tenth of all that God promised. Mm -hmm. So um, is, is, do we just let it go and say, oh, well, you know, they, they, they got part of it, so that's good enough? No, I believe literally they're going to occupy as a nation all 300,000 square miles. When will that be? In the millennial kingdom. Yeah. It is one of the purposes for the thousand-year reign on the earth. God has made promises to the nation of Israel mm -hmm. that have not been fulfilled mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. And that is that there would be a theocratic kingdom, a theocentric kingdom, and a geocentric kingdom. That it would, it would center in Israel, Jerusalem as the capital, mm -hmm. Messiah would reign, and uh, they will, during the millennium, occupy all of that. In fact, it's not just an Old Testament promise. When the angel predicted to Mary in the Gospel of Luke um, that she was going to have the Messiah, it says, and he will sit upon the throne of his father David. Yeah. So there is a promise that God gave to David that has not been fulfilled for all of that land 
and, uh, and that will be fulfilled in the Messiah, in the millennial kingdom. So good that we, we serve a God that is faithful to his promises. Yeah, he's going to keep every promise. And we might forget about it and try to spiritualize it. Yeah. God won't. Yeah. He keeps it literally. That's good. Um, just as a little tag on to that question, it wasn't written here, but I love the biblical significance or the spiritual significance that you often draw from that truth, that they only occupied 10%. Oftentimes when you've taught on that, you've applied that to us today, only sometimes taking God up on, on, on 10% of our promise. Can you flesh that out just a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians 1 tells us, has been given to us. How many of us enjoy every spiritual blessing yeah. in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? So you can have a promise, but unless you take it to the bank and decide, I'm going to claim that and live on that, yeah. um, you're, you're only going to live part of what God wants for you. So if God says, take this land and occupy it, yeah. take it. And, and as you know, when they took the land under Joshua, and even in the book of Judges, all the way through, they're still occupying land in the book of Judges, and they never made it all the way because they were scared right. or they let the enemy in the land. And so uh, they, there were compromises. Yeah. We have to be careful not to do that. Yeah, that's so good. So good. Next question that we got is from... Ooh, they actually didn't write their name. First time that I decided I was going to name somebody and give credit to somebody. It's not even there. So it says, the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus descended into hell. I don't find a Bible reference for that. Is there one? Um, she's referring to the Nicene Creed, which we made uh, um, mention of this last weekend, mm -hmm. uh, that, that Jesus descended into hell and then uh, after, the after his death, and then he was uh, raised. So that's part of the Nicene Creed. It actually comes from a text in um, Ephesians chapter 4 that says, And he that ascended, first of all, descended into the lower parts of the earth mm -hmm. to set captives from their captivity. Um, now, the, uh, the place of the dead in the Old Testament is called Sheol, the place of departed spirits. In the New Testament, the equivalent is Hades. So it's, it's accurate when you say he descended into hell to say he descended into Hades, the abode of the dead. He did not descend into the everlasting hell. That isn't even around yet. The lake of fire, right. that's an eternal hell. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't go for any reason to torment or to experience pain uh, like some say he did. He simply went to make an announcement. Yeah. And uh, in the book of Peter, it sort of brings this out, adds a little bit of light to that. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, I wrote that down. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. What Jesus did is when he descended to the lower parts of the earth, he descended to make an announcement of his victory. So that's the idea that made its way into the Nicene Creed, and that word, the idea of Hades or Sheol, is translated into that creed and in English as hell. Thank you for answering that. This, these next two questions I think are really important. Can I add an addendum to that? Sure. So Hades had two places, two compartments, a place of blessing or comfort and a place of torment until the judgment and the ultimate torment. But uh, Jesus spoke about Abraham's bosom. He only did that once, but he talked about a place where departed spirits are comforted uh, by Abraham. 
And um, so one is a place of blessing, one is a place of torment. And that place, that holding tank, if you will, as some people like to call it, um, Abraham's bosom, is not occupied any longer. If a person dies in Christ today, he's immediately in the presence of God. Be absent from the body. Mm -hmm. So in Romans, mainly chapter 13, we learn about dealing with government. And you've recently talked about this. But uh, the question is, in light of the fact that anti-Christian ideologies periodically arise and sometimes become part of the government for discernment, what are some features of an anti-Christian ideology? And under what circumstances should a Christian submit versus resist? Yeah, we got a couple questions about this, and yeah. that is, it's a hot-button topic right now yeah. uh, because of government mandates that are not, um, they're not equal in different states. People experience different things in counties, in cities. Uh, it differs, so there's not a homogenous mandate, mm -hmm. and so it's caused a lot of confusion. But, you know, the idea about anti-Christian ideology, a government has always had anti-Christian overtones, yeah. simply because it's of this world, mm -hmm. and uh, it is a fallen world. So John said, don't love this world, uh, neither the things that are in this world. If anyone loves the Father or loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the government that Paul wrote about obeying back then was not uh, a democracy, a voting democracy. It was an imperial government. Rome was in charge. Rome had the right of life and death at a whim. They could just say, you know what? I don't like you. You're guilty. You die. They could do that. So uh, we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Um, uh, we still have m more freedoms. Um, but here is the bottom line for Christians. When, when government mandates contravene clear biblical standards, we resist it. So kind of the rule of thumb I've always said is that being a good Christian, part of it, means being a good citizen until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. Yeah. So if your obedience to the government means you violate a clear a dictate of God, um, then you are to resist it. And the early church did that by saying we must obey God rather than man. Yeah, so good. Well, that kind of that, that answers the second question that really had to do uh, with government as well. The next one that I had laid out. So we're going to jump into Kayla's question. She asks this. Do you think there are any true prophets today or are they all false prophets? Um, well, first of all, let's go to uh, that's a good question. Uh, the role of a prophet or prophets today. And they're. In all of these questions, they, they wouldn't be asked as questions unless there was debate about it or controversy sure. over it. And uh, some, there are some churches that have their own apostles, they have their prophets, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, some like to see prophets as simply preachers. That's how they look at it, somebody who's a spokesperson for God. In the Old Testament, a prophet sort of served a dual role. Like, so if Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets come, they... Uh, foretold the future. Mm -hmm. uh, they foretold world events in some cases. They often foretold events just in the nation of Israel, just depending on, on what God called them to do. Mm -hmm. So part of it was foretelling, but another huge part was forthtelling or telling forth the scripture, yeah. telling forth 
the, the, the dictates of God, the word of God. So it could be a word of exhortation or rebuke. That a prophet had that role. It could be to a king. Um, so in, when you get to the New Testament and you have the apostles, um, you don't have a, a role of prophet in a local church typically, but Paul did talk about in Ephesians that God has given to the church mm -hmm. some apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints mm -hmm. for the work of the ministry. Yeah. And so clearly uh, there was in operation a prophetic gift. Uh, there were in the New Testament, though rarely, uh, designated people who foretold the future. Hmm. They, they, were, they had a prophetic gift in the, in the sense of foretelling the future. Agabus was one. Mm -hmm. He foretold that Paul, if he went to Jerusalem, would be bound with a belt, would be captured, and would be uh, ill-treated. There were the uh, four daughters, Philip's four daughters, uh, who prophesied. We don't exactly know what that means, but uh, they, they gave some kind of either foretelling or foretelling. So they, they, were, they were identified as either prophets or prophetesses. And so it seems to me that there was indeed that role, uh, and uh, it was used. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there were rules for the exercising of gifts in the church, including tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy. And Paul belabors in one chapter, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, the difference between the use of tongues and the use of prophecy in a public assembly. Um, what he says there is whoever prophesies, um, 1 Corinthians 14, speaks edification exhortation or comfort. Edification, build up, exhortation, stir up, um, and then comfort, cheering up. So that seems to fit the role. Now what I see in 1 Corinthians is a specific gift of a word from the Lord for a person or a group at that time. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily a pulling out of Scripture, though it could embody that if it fits that criteria. But it could be, and I, I see it mostly in that context, as a specific word from the Lord for an individual or a group of people. Um, anyway, so that, that's probably enough said. There, you could say more, but uh, enough said on that. Thank you. I love this next question because it highlights that some, some people, some of the people that are here and listening online have been coming for a long time and we're, we're constantly seeing people that are newer to the faith. People are saying, hey, who is this Jesus guy? What's Christianity all about? And so this next question comes from somebody that admits that. It says, was Jesus Christ a real man who walked this earth? He goes on to say this. Let me ask the whole bit because I love what he communicates afterwards. He says, I gather from my short time reading the Bible that Jesus Christ was an outspoken, not afraid of anything type of man. I like his style. Good. I like that he likes his style. Yeah. He says it has drawn me to the Bible and now I can put it down. Can't put it down. So the question is, was Jesus Christ a real man that walked this earth? Yeah, I like his style too. And, and um, I, I, love, I love the fact that Jesus is so compelling, even mm. to this day. Those who read, honestly, the New Testament will be drawn to him. Yeah. And um, so the answer, the short answer is, 
of course, yes, he was a historical person. Yeah. Um, it's written down in the history of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are other sources that speak of the historicity Josephus. of Jesus Christ. Josephus and, 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 and others. And um, so, uh, yes, he was. And I love the fact that Jesus wasn't intimidated by anybody at mm -hmm. all. And that he did, like like uh, the question says, or the, the comment says, he wasn't afraid of anything or anyone. He was never alarmed, and uh, he was in perfect control. So, so yes, he was indeed historical. Good. Um, Do you agree with that, Matt? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm there. You huh? looked at me like, I don't know if I agree <laughs> I gonna I was going to take a stab at the other I question. Thought, I don't know if a pastor should not <laughs> agree with that. I will resign the day that I disagree with that, okay. which I hope never comes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, my hesitance was I was going to ask maybe another question kind of pertaining okay, to that. Okay, go ahead. So maybe what are some of the other, what are some of the other secular, I mean, you mentioned Josephus, but are there other secular writings or, or what other evidences do we have for the historicity of Jesus as a person? We have some um, Roman writings that speak about the... Um, uh, Darkness that fell over the land, yeah. all over that whole general region, um, that it lasted for three hours, like the scripture says. Yeah. And uh, so we have certain events that are written about that corroborate New, New Testament uh, documents. Yeah. So several scriptures state that people are baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Are we saved through baptism, and is that why some faith traditions baptize infants? Also, Jesus was baptized, and he had no sin. Was he baptized so that he could identify with humanity or to start his ministry, or so that when we are baptized, we will identify with him in his death and resurrection? Oh, those are so those no, like three or questions. four questions yeah. in there. So let me tackle the first one about baptized for the remission of sins. And are we saved by baptism? No, we are not saved by baptism. We like to say baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Yeah. The inward change happens first, then a person testifies to that inward change by baptism. How do we, we know that, that we should look at the Bible that way? Well, this person is saying that there are several scriptures. Really, there's one in particular in the book of Acts chapter mm -hmm. 2, where Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized, baptized for the remission of sins. So some people read into that. Mm -hmm. It means that you should be baptized in order that you might have your sins forgiven. Mm -hmm. That's not what the text means. The word for in that particular verse is the word ice, which uh, it, it, it could mean so that in certain cases, but it can also mean because of. Mm. And most often it means because of. So, for example, if I say that soldier was decorated for bravery, hmm. do I mean that he was decorated and because he was decorated, therefore he became brave? No, I mean that because he was brave, he was decorated to testify that he was brave. Yeah. That's how the word baptism for the remission of sins. The fact that your sins are remitted 
Now you get baptized to show that. That's, that's yeah. the idea of the word for. That's good. One of the things that I really like that you just addressed is uh, anytime that we come up across a passage that can be difficult, and it's like, wait a minute, this seems to maybe have like some contradictions to other places in the Bible. It's always safest to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Right, that's so, good. So choose, look at the, the whole context of Scripture and see what other passages say about salvation right. and whether or not it came, comes to And we didn't baptism. even get into the other question. Did so, Jesus yeah, do it to identify? Yes. Primarily, I see his baptism, Jesus being baptized at the Jordan, to identify with sinful men. Even John the Baptist said, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, do this to fulfill all righteousness. Mm. So it was uh, to identify with those that he came to save. Yeah. So let me ask the third part of that question that has to do with infant baptism. And I, I know that a lot of... Um, a lot of people practice that. I think we live in a, in a state. I, my that's parents a, practice that. I was baptized so you, as an infant. You were baptized. As, so but I don't remember it, but I was told that I was. I believe my mom. But You don't have that good of a memory that you can think back to when no, you were No, I can't. I don't. I'm wow. sorry. I try really hard. You quote you know, poems you up get, here the all the time. You What's that? You quote poems up here from memory all the time. You bring all your notes. Like on Wednesdays, you don't even have notes. You can't remember that. I cannot. A little disappointed. I failed, Matt. So you did not baptize me as an infant, but you dedicated me. Talk about what's the difference. But I wanted to baptize you as an infant the whole time. I did. I just thought, you know, this kid, Which I need form to baptize of baptism him. I need to dunk him in the water. Would it have been full submersion? No, I'd have just sprayed a hose at you or something. <laughs> Maybe you want to do that to me now. Hopefully not as, a, as an infant. Uh, but let's talk about that because I think it's a question that a lot of people have is why not baptize infants? Why do we do baby dedications instead? Kind of what's the mentality there? The mentality of infant baptism is that baptism saves. So to, in the faith I was raised in, to secure a soul from eternal limbo, you want to make sure they go to heaven. You go through the sacrament, the ritual of baptism, which to them is tantamount to being born again. You get born again through baptism. Uh, rather than seeing it as an outward sign of an inward change. So it's simply a safety precaution. It's the, it's the parachute. It's like we've got to make sure this kid goes to heaven. Sure. Now, I believe if a child dies before a child can make a decision for or against Christ, that he's going to go to heaven, doesn't matter who he is or where he was raised. Yeah. I think he's going to go straight to heaven. And Yeah, amen. Um, so just right along with that, I think, <clears throat> yeah, uh, right along with that, what was I going to follow up with? I guess we'll have to just jump to the next question. You'll think of it, and then you'll go, oh, yeah. Man, I was calling you out on your memory. Yeah. <laughs> now I can't even remember something that I was thinking about four seconds ago. <laughs> okay, so the, the Scripture states that the communion elements are the body and the blood of Christ. We take communion more as a remembrance, but some faith traditions believe it really does turn into the body and the blood of Christ. Yeah. Does it? It does not. Okay. The, the doctrine is called transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. And um, it's what the Catholic Church espouses, that the elements tr become the body. Why? Mm -hmm. Because Jesus said at the Passover that he had the Last Supper at, this is my body, this is my blood. So they take that statement in a literal fashion, that the bread and the wine literally become his flesh and blood. So what the Catholic Church has is what is called the uh, continual sacrifice of the Mass, mm -hmm. that there is atonement going on around 
the world because the Mass is being said mm -hmm. and that consecration, that ritual, that sacrament, that prayer uh, is being offered. Um, we believe, I believe, that it is symbolic, uh, like baptism, an outward sign of something far more profound. And that's because when Paul the Apostle took and quoted what Jesus said at the Last Supper, he exegeted that passage for us, and he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. You don't kill him again. Yeah. He doesn't die every time. Yeah. It's not going through that sacrifice again and again and again and again. You are simply showing that he died. Now, let's go back to the Last Supper when Jesus said that. Think of Jesus holding up the bread and holding up the wine and saying, this is my body, uh, this is my blood. Um, how could those elements at that time be his broken body yeah. and blood when he himself hadn't died yet? Yeah. He was in the room, his body was, and he would be arrested. And how could they at that moment do that? Right. that that's an impossibility. So here's what we have to do in interpreting that. Uh, when we exegete something that is obviously figurative, and I believe that's obviously figurative, yeah. this is my body, this is my blood, um, just like when Jesus said, I am the door. I don't go to a door and go, wow, this is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus. It's a door, but it's him. Or I am the vine. I don't pick up a bunch of grapes and go, wow, that turned into Jesus just now. I don't do that. I understand he is speaking metaphorically. Same thing with this is my body, this is my blood. Makes it easy to understand. There you go. Um, we had one person that liked that explanation. Thank you, Richard. It's so thorough. And he drives a you, long way, so uh, we well, should give him a hand. We just should. Uh, this next question says, I have heard pastors say that Jesus was sick. Yeah, that Jesus was sick with maladies. Like Is, diseases. Yes. Yeah, yeah, illness. Like he got a cold and stuff? Or, or the flu or... And not COVID. Not COVID. <laughs> it wasn't 2019 yet. Uh, this is not mentioned in the Bible, the question continues, that Jesus recovered or that he was sick. I heard from pastors that for him to have been sick would complete his humanness. Since Jesus was our perfect sacrifice, how would you answer that contradiction? Um, I don't know that there is a contradiction, but... There is no contradiction at all, and if pastors say that, they're speaking false doctrine because Jesus, it's a false assumption. Um, th there is a strain of belief in Pentecostalism that Jesus needed to suffer and that when Jesus died, he even went to hell right. and suffered in hell and was tormented in hell and had to, from hell, come back and be born again. And it's, it's nonsense. It's yeah. not in the scripture. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can look for it all day long and you won't find it because it ain't there. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just a false assumption and it's, it's ridiculous to read stuff that's not there into it. Right. And, and furthermore, him being the perfect sacrifice. I like sacrifice. that you said furthermore. Furthermore. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Well, let me say it a few more times then. Uh, no, so him being the perfect sacrifice doesn't necessitate that he was never sick. It necessitates that he was sinless. Sinless, right. That's why Hebrew says he was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Yeah. And that would make him the spotless lamb. That could... Exactly. Bingo. Bingo. <clears throat> All right. So 
yeah, let's jump into this one. It seems this is getting into the revelation questions, and we've got a, a few here. We've got about nine minutes, so we might do two, two or three more questions. It seems that the pre-tribulation rapture is a more modern idea. Can you give examples of early and middle church leaders who talked about or taught the pre-tribulation rapture? They go on to say this. Matthew Henry wrote in his Bible commentary about 1706 that he views 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17 as the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, do you want me to read that passage just so that everyone's familiar? Sure, with go it? ahead. Can you, you want a bigger Bible? Can you read? Can, <laughs> just, does anybody have my glasses out here? Do you have a here? microscope maybe? To re- <laughs> no, but if, you've, if you have one handy, then I will definitely use it. Look at this. Should have been ready. All right. What do we say? 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, so... That's why that cannot be the second coming. So I love Matthew Henry, but Matthew Henry isn't scripture. Matthew Henry is a man like you or I. So we can be wrong. Scripture cannot. What I see there is far different from the second coming, which is detailed in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus comes to the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, what, What I see in Thessalonians is Jesus coming not to the earth, but in the clouds, in the air, and we are caught up in the clouds, in the air to meet him and then be with him. So it's a different coming. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not coming to rule and reign like it is at the end of the tribulation period. Mm -hmm. So it's very different. The wording is different. I think what you have in Thessalonians is the, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a commentary on what Jesus said in John 14. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. Paul says that reception will take place in the clouds, yeah. in the air. And, and so he didn't come to earth. He just comes to the atmosphere. Yeah, I think you... Um, yeah, but, you know, it, it, I've heard this for years. It's a very popular argument to say a pre-tribulation rapture is a modern thinking. The early church never had it. And they like to kind of pin it on a guy named James Darby in the 1800s. They say he came up with it. Darby talked about the pre-tribulation rapture, but it really wasn't a thing until he did it. They're wrong. All James Darby did is bring us back to what was said a long time ago. There are plenty of early church fathers and contemporaries of Matthew Henry, for that matter, who believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. So, first of all, Jesus taught he would personally come back for the church. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 said, we'll be united with Christ in the gods. He'll come back for the church. But also, people throughout the earliest centuries, like Irenaeus in the second century, predicted, like Jesus said, there's going to be a great tribulation upon the earth, but that the church would be removed from that time of persecution or tribulation. Um, then a guy by the name of uh, Victorinus in 240 AD wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. He spoke about the plagues of God's wrath, and he said, and I quote, the church shall have gone out of the midst of the earth during that time of wrath. And then Cyprian also wrote of a coming judgment, but an early departure of the church. And he said, 
What's coming on the earth will be far worse than has ever happened according to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, but that the church will be departed, taken away, his words, and delivered from that time. So this isn't some new yeah. Darby 1800s thing. It goes all the way back to the earliest centuries. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, we've got time for maybe just one more question, then I have a final question, so I guess two. Um, are then the I have judgment- a question for you, but I won't oh, tell do you. you. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. <clears throat> I can't do any good Bob Dylan impressions, if that's what you're asking. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> You've been thinking long and hard. I can see the smirk on your face. It's going to be a good one. Uh, are the judgments to be viewed as singular or separate events that are singular separate events that happen one by one with each having a clear start and end? Or should they be viewed as a conf- conflagration? Wow, that's the first time that I've read that word today. You like that? Yeah. Of events that are continuous throughout the tribulation. For instance, will the cosmic disturbances of the sixth seal still be occurring when the locusts of the fifth trumpet are released? Yeah, th- so there's debate about this. Um, short answer I don't know. Uh, another short answer nobody knows exactly. But there's a couple of different theories on how the book of Revelation lays out. Uh, Some see it as progressive and chronological. Others see it as a recapitulation. It's sort of happening simultaneously. And and it's recap of the the same kind of judgments just just expanded upon. Um, It seems to me, I I take the first view that it's more progressive. There can be overlap because you have these... um, you have these layers in it. You have this hiatus. You have this, these parenthetical statements, uh, these intercalations that are in the book of Revelation that, that, that I can see an overlap, but it's best to read it progressive. In other, in other words, the second coming happens at the end of the tribulation. The millennium actually happens after the tribulation. The new heaven and new earth and all of eternity happens after that. It seems best to just read it chronologically. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, well, I want to ask this question. Since we've been spending, we've spent two years flying over books of the Bible. So you, you spend an hour in one book, you cover from a 30,000 foot perspective, kind of highlighting the themes, here are the main people, these are the main events. Can you give us in a few sentences the 30,000 foot view of all scripture? What yeah. is the main message that you want people, why did we do this series and what's the main thing you would want people to leave with? The Bible is about one person and two events. Mainly, it's about the superstar of all history, Mm. predicted, interpreted, envisioned by the prophets through the ages. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. He is Israel's Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's about one person Mm -hmm. and two events. The first event is his first coming. The second event is his second coming. At the first coming, he comes to deal with sin. Mm -hmm. At the second coming, he comes to rule and reign with those who have been cleansed from sin. And that is the whole Bible in a nutshell. One person, two events. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible from 30,000 feet. That was like 300,000 feet. That was, yeah. That That was was way up there. (laughs) From Venus or something. Just like one snapshot. Boom. The the earth and the whole picture. Hey, would you pray? Real quick. Tell me about this shirt. This is my question. It says, stay the course. Stay on course. Stay on course. Tell me what this means. The the font is as small as the font in my Bible. Um, So that's not true. But this is a Bible from 30,000 foot shirt. Okay. And it's available over in parchments. I did not know that. No. (laughs) I like that design. 
So I it was almost like a shameless plug, that? but you didn't know. Yes, you can. Is there anything on the back? Just just the color of it. Just the Solid color. Okay. Color, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Stay on course. I like that. So we've got all the Bible 30K merch. We didn't set this up, by the way, but we've got all the 30K merch over in Parchments. And since this is the last 30K, we've got everything discounted, so you can go grab that. It's actually right outside, even more convenient for you on your way out. But, Pastor Skip, would you close this in prayer, and then we have a short video we'd like to show everyone. Yes. Father, I want to thank you for a group of hungry believers who have been disoriented and confused like everybody else has during this time of a pandemic, not knowing exactly what to do, what to believe, what scientific thread is right or wrong, but faithful and hungry and coming to fellowship week by week. Father, I pray that as you said in your word, you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, And you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. I pray that you would fill everyone, Lord, uh, to the brim. Give them courage in these last days, courage to speak out, courage to live their life and their convictions in public, uh, not being afraid of who they are and what they believe in for the cause of Christ. Lord, we're entering in a very difficult season in our country, not only with health, but with politics, and there's going to be lots of divisions and lots of lines being drawn. I pray, Lord, that we will see everything through the lens of what we have been studying the last couple of years, and that is the Scripture. We would, we would look at what the Bible says about uh, the abortion issue, what the Bible says about life, what the Bible says about freedom. And, and we would interpret all these things and vote according to what the lens that the Scripture provides for us. Give us strength, Lord, in these days to, to come out of the closet as Christians and unashamedly, without fear, proclaim that I follow Jesus, regardless of what you think or if you like it or not. That's who I am that we'd identify with that one person who came once and is coming again. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 Feet.